0: So, stress and psychological injury sometimes has a kind of um, kind of legalistic definition in terms of the possibility of uh, of, um, of payments, uh, but I think it's reasonably it's re- reasonably clearly understood as a kind of in, in, as an injury that um, is obviously psychological as opposed to physical, and the implication is that. Uh, there's some kind of damage which is in need of repair. Um, it's characterised by, on the one hand, various kinds of mental distress, conditions of extreme fear uh, and associated behaviour such as hypervigilance, but also uh, by various kinds of cognitive impairments such as memory loss. Um, it is a a feature very much of policing and of military personnel. And those occupations are subject to some quite notable stressors that uh, cause psychological injury. Um, Often characterised as follows, or or at least taxonomised as follows, um, consequence of some traumatic event, life-threatening or... uh, uh, life-threatening uh, injury, uh, obviously uh, being shot at or everyone's legs blown off or some such thing. Um, those life-threatening situations tend to generate uh, fear, obviously, but also a sense of helplessness and so on. The second kind of major category is, uh, is some kind of major loss, generating grief. Um, and the third Sort of major category that's often drawn attention to is uh, mental fatigue as a consequence of uh, recurring traumatic events, uh, and the the kind of image that's often uh, offered here is of a sort of frog in uh, that's put in water. So confront a traumatic <coughs> event, uh, able to accommodate one event, able to accommodate. Events over a series of over a period of time, but eventually wear and tear uh, generates some kind of damage. Okay, um, moral injury is often contrasted and is is typically, I think, contrasted in the literature with um, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and if we look at some of the, the literature on this, perhaps the easiest way to characterise the difference, as far as the literature is concerned, is to think of uh, to think of uh, PTSD uh, as severe stress and functional impairments uh, resulting from traumatic events. So, what's the difference between PTSD and moral injury? Well, it's quite similar, except that what's typically added is that uh, the traumatic the traumatic event in question um, violated an, in, uh, an individual's moral values. So the idea is that PTSD is somehow morality is not implicated, but with moral injuries somehow it is, and the way in which it's uh, implicated is that the person who's traumatised, the one who's suffering the injury uh, has engaged in some moral transgression they've done something morally wrong or something that they believe to be morally wrong or alternatively someone has wronged them and that this is part of the trauma whereas in the other cases it isn't so in the PTSD cases um there is no moral transgression that's the way the distinction is um is typically drawn and i'm going to suggest that that actually is is rather problematic to draw to draw the distinction that way although i do um i do accept that there are cases where obviously the trauma doesn't involve a transgression on the person traumatized and doesn't necessarily involve anyone who's wronged them. I mean, obvious cases would be uh, accidents or uh, natural disasters which may traumatize people, but no one has been wronged, even though um, the, the, the sufferer uh, has been um, psychologically damaged. Um, Jonathan Shea, uh, got the quote there, he distinguishes between PTSD and, and moral injury. Um, and he suggests that where there has been moral injury, that is where there's been a moral transgression or someone has been deeply wronged or feels that they've been deeply wronged, um, they're different in terms of uh, what's called for in terms of treatment. And Specifically, if the person who's been traumatised by something that they've done, where the thing that they've done involves a moral transgression, then uh, it's far more difficult to, to treat them. Uh, it's also far more difficult to treat someone who, f- who feels that they've been uh, deeply morally wrong, says, says Shea. He's a um, psychiatrist treating people, so... Um, there's reason to to accept what he ha- has to say on the matter um, okay so what I want to suggest is that when people in, in this context and in, indeed in a lot of other contexts talk about morality they often have in mind a, a kind of narrow sense of morality that is morality is consisting of, of certain sorts of prohibitions don't, don't tell lies don't cheat people don't steal, don't enslave people, don't kill people, and so on. Um, and whatever whatever one thinks of of that as a as an account of morality, it, it is somewhat I think somewhat narrow. An alternative view is a little bit more expansive, and I think it's the one that might be needed in this context. That is the view of a moral agent, not not simply as someone who might um, violate or not violate. Various rules, but who actually is the kind of a, is the kind of agent that cares a lot about certain things? That cares fairly deeply about certain things. Um, and most people are caring agents in this sense. I, I'm not. I don't have in mind, by the way, that um, kind of normative theory that that uh, of care ethics that. Um, and, and, although I guess there's, there's, uh, there's, uh, there's a relationship there. Um, so if you, if you think about it, uh, most people care pretty deeply about their own life, uh, which is, of course, a source of trauma uh, when it's threatened and when it's continuously threatened. The fear of death, um, the ongoing exposure... To, to life-threatening situations can be quite traumatic and that seems to me to strongly suggest that what's in play here is the fact, that, the, the the quite basic natural fact that people uh, deeply care about their life and they also care about the lives of various significant other people so that when those people, when the lives of, of their family and so on are threatened, that also or, or indeed they die, that generates grief, which can be quite traumatic. Other things that people typically very deeply care about are their autonomy, Um, and of course uh, they very much care about being treated unjustly uh, by others. What about the police and, uh, and the military? Well, They are, as human beings, care about all these things I've just mentioned. But in addition, um, it seems that they have a particular uh, set of virtues that they care very much about, that they seek to be approved of because they have these virtues. And if they think that they don't have these virtues, that can be a great source of shame to them. Let's call those virtues role-based honor. The the role of the police officer, the role of the military uh, combatant um, is such that they internalize a certain structure of virtues of course, those virtues are ones that a lot of other people have too, but it, it's, it's particularly important to them, let's put it that way. Um, loyalty to comrades, uh, physical courage, um, strength and skill uh, with, with, with a weapon, uh, discipline, uh, and something that's particularly relevant to, to moral injury, physical and mental resilience. <coughs> And, and and the self-mastery, uh, the ability to control oneself in, in dangerous or life-threatening uh, situations uh, is uh, very much to the fore um, when it comes to the honour that is so important to police and, and military personnel. Um, obviously, that structure of virtues is to some extent derived from the the purposes uh, of those uh, of those occupations. Um, what I'd like to particularly draw attention to is that th- the self-worth that those individuals feel and the worth that uh, they actually have in the eyes of others is very much dependent um, on their capacity uh, to, dis- to have and to display mental and physical resilience. And it's a source of uh, considerable distress if uh, they feel or others feel that they are weak uh, or cowardly. Cowardice is something that is, is not acceptable. <clears throat> Okay, so if you think about this notion, this kind of fairly informal notion of a caring agent, um, which I'm contrasting with a sort of narrow notion of uh, an agent that uh, is concerned not to engage in, uh, not to breach certain sorts of rules, not to breach rules of of, uh, against lying and cheating and so on and so forth, I'm suggesting that the caring agent is possessed of sort of, it can be thought of as, as having four components. The first component, obviously, is they've got some sort of caring attitude, which is essentially a kind of emotion. Um, but it's not an emotion in a sense of, of, a, of, a, of a simple idea of like, dislike, or, um, that kind, or, or a sort of feeling. It's a complex uh, attitude which, which consists in part of, of cognitive states, such as beliefs and so on. Uh, But at any rate, it's 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 an emotion, um, and not simply uh, a set of beliefs. So the content of the caring attitude is whatever they care about, and I've suggested a number of things they care about: their life, most people do; they care about lives of others; they they also care about uh, the levels of uh, they they like to they they care about whether or not they're approved of by other people, Um, and of course, as an agent. as a, The caring agent obviously has agency, which um, translates roughly into autonomy, uh, the, which includes not simply freedom from, from, uh, from interference by others, but self-mastery. Um, and of course, uh, that autonomy that they possess uh, is partly in the service of the other things that the, that the agent cares about. So they're the kind of components of this uh, view. So if we look down at four different ways in which uh, the moral identity of such an agent might be compromised or undermined, because for the caring agent, if if it consists of a caring attitude a certain content in terms of uh, caring about their life, caring about the life of others and so on, autonomy, then we can look at the moral identity, understood in terms of the moral identity of a caring agent in this this sense, we can think of that, that moral identity as being potentially compromised in at least four ways. The first way in which it might be compromised is that, or undermined, is that the something deeply cared about is lost. So if you think of a mother losing her child, this might compromise or to some extent undermine their moral identity in this sense um, of moral identity, namely the moral identity of a caring agent. And hence phrases such as she lost part of herself and so on and so forth. Um, A second kind of way in which it might be uh, diminished or undermined or compromised is some externally caused harm that overwhelms the caring agent's agency. Uh, so the death of, of comrades in war and so on may induce grief, but also, and this is a kind of um, a, a feature of, of PTSD suffered by um, uh, combatants, is a sense of helplessness. And that kind of trauma can undermine the caring agent's autonomy. Their self-mastery um, is is called into question. Um, they're overwhelmed by, by say, fear in this in this context. And that helplessness uh, compromises their uh, their autonomy, um, and induces. Um, can induce a psych- uh, cause a psychological uh, damage, or as I'm describing it, uh, moral moral injury, and potentially um, compromise their moral identity. The third kind of case that comes to mind is uh, the conflict between what is cared about um, as part of one's uh, role identity, and what one what one might um, care about, as it were, prior to the internalisation of that role identity. Um, so, for example, if uh, there's as as I think most people uh, as is the case with most people, there's a sort of deep aversion to killing people. That is, it's it's profoundly um, distressing. Um, But if the role is such that um, this is part of the role, and you need to, uh, as it were, um, internalise this and, uh, and be able to engage in this kind of activity, uh, potentially routinely, then that might set up a a kind of a a kind of tension between these two elements of your uh, of your identity. On the one hand, it's part of your identity that um, was part of your identity that the the aversion to killing. On the other hand, now, that is a necessary part of the role and um, it may be that tension which uh, generates problems um, for for soldiers in particular. Okay. now the fourth kind of case is... uh, Obviously, simply a kind of loss of your moral identity, um, which is a feature of some extreme cases of PTSD, uh, post-traumatic st- uh, stress disorder, uh, some of these guys reportedly simply cease to care about anything very much. Okay, So the caring agent is no longer cares literally about very much. Um, and that would seem to be a fairly profound loss of moral identity. Um, okay, so a couple of other points that some of the objects of care uh, are, are kind of con, con, constitutively parts of one another. So it's not just that you care about this and you care about this and you care about this thing uh, and they're separable and, and compartmentalised. It's that in caring about this thing you also kind of necessarily care about this other thing. So think of this at the individual level and then at the group level. At the individual level, perhaps the ongoing threat of being killed generates a condition of fearfulness and that fearfulness, you fear fear for your life uh, may in turn undermine your morally informed rational judgement. You're overwhelmed by the fear which undermines your autonomy. So now You've got a problem in terms of your capacity for self mastery. Um, and that in turn may uh, undermine your self respect since self mastery is, v- is crucially important to you. So you've now got a kind of ramification process going on uh, where one part of your identity is starting to be undermined and that starts to undermine another element of your, of your identity and so on. Another kind of case which is uh, of ramification is through a group where. The loss of a sibling in a family or a common of war is not simply your sort of particular direct loss that you feel profoundly, uh, gr- you, you grieve uh, deeply and so on, you hurt deeply um, and you may even be, be injured in a, in a manner that needs repair. It's not just a sort of temporary feeling. Um, but that loss that you feel may be felt by a close relative of yours—that is, your loss is felt by them. So this loss ramifies through the through the group. Okay. Um, so I'm suggesting not that, just returning to the standard view of this. I'm I'm not um, rejecting the claim that there's a distinction to be made between. Um, a traumatic event which causes extreme distress and may cause cognitive impairments, I'm not rejecting the proposition that there's a distinction to be made between those traumatic events or sequence of events that um, are such that you have morally transgressed or someone has morally transgressed against you. Those ones, those kinds of cases on the one hand, and the other kinds of cases of traumatic events which generate extreme distress and, and uh, possible cognitive impairments, which don't involve you um, transgressing or don't involve someone else tran- morally transgressing against you, wronging you. I'm not suggesting that isn't a distinction. What I'm suggesting is that both cases uh, involve... Um, the potential to undermine your moral identity. And and the the argument there is essentially that um, there are certain things that you care deeply about and if, if those things are taken away or in some way compromised, that can undermine your moral identity because they're things that you deeply care about and that can happen even in those cases where you haven't actually done anything morally wrong and indeed nor has anyone necessarily done anything wrong to you okay so what's the upshot of this um the upshot of this is if if this view of the matter that i'm presenting is 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 correct it's not simply that uh it's not simply that there's PTSD here and moral injury over here, or even that moral injury is a kind of species of PTSD if this view is correct, actually PTSD is a species of moral injury a particularly serious kind of moral injury um, or or more more specifically PTSD is a manifestation of a very serious moral injury if this view is is, uh, is to be believed. Of course, it'll turn out that there are now at least two different species of moral injury, ones that involve transgressions or being transgressed against on the one hand and the other cases where that's not, not the case. Of course, there's a sort of verbal point here. If you want to insist that one of these kinds of cases is moral injury <clears throat> and the other isn't, you, um, you, you can obviously do so, but um, that doesn't affect the, the larger theoretical point. Okay, one of, the, um, one of the consequences of this is that since a lot of these traumatic events are beyond the control uh, of the person morally injured, of the person suffering from PTSD, since a lot of these events are, b- are beyond their control, one can't actually now say, in, at least in some of these cases that the person could be morally responsible. They're obviously not morally responsible for the event that traumatised them in the cases in question. But now we can we can also obviously say that they're not actually moral morally responsible for the damage, the psychological damage that's been done to them. Um, and therefore, if this view that I've been pushing is correct, they're not actually morally responsible uh, for the diminution, or the compromising, or the diminishing of their moral identity, resulting from those traumatic events. Uh, so this seems to mean that your moral identity is, to some extent, um, to some extent, not under your control. Which is to say that the boundaries of moral responsibility are not, so as so to speak, coterminous with. The boundaries of, of uh, moral identity, um, and and of course, it also would follow from that that it may be that if you're, as a consequence of these traumatic events, suffering um, this loss of moral identity, that. If you are to be, so to speak, repaired, that would entail, at least in these cases, um, some kind of um, uh, collaboration or assistance from other people other than yourself, maybe your family members, maybe your colleagues, maybe your your comrades, uh, health professionals or whatever, at least... uh, that may well be the case in many cases. Of course, there'll be other cases where, uh, uh, evidently, it it's simply the, the problem can't be resolved; you can't be healed. Um, the mechanism here seems to be, from from what I can make out, that um, when these tra- traumatic events uh, take place, you uh, engage in a process of dissociation, try to get some distance between yourself and the trauma, <laughs> which is a actually a a, a, a very useful typically a very useful device to to deal with, with trauma to try and get some distance don't uh, keep it to some extent um, uh, at a distance from yourself but the problem is that if it's been very severe and long lasting and so on you, you simply um, end up with this sort of unresolved psychological injury that you have which you're not actually doing anything about and which, which actually uh, uh, con- you continually, at times, re-experience and therefore get re-traumatized. So, in order to deal with the the injury, you're going to have to, to some extent, uh, come to terms with it or reinterpret it or or something if it's if it's to be uh, dealt with, if, if indeed it can be dealt with. Um, but at any rate, that process may involve um, assistance from other people. Okay, so. Um, If we think about uh, combatants first and then I'll move to say something about police. Um, uh, Combatants um, first, uh, the empirical evidence seems to be that killing in military combat is closely associated with moral injury and disassociative experiences of the kind I mentioned earlier, violent behaviour in civilian life and and, uh, functional impairment. So the, the mere fact that you engage in killing for, at least for, for some, uh, for some members of the military, um, can have this kind of uh, impact, and presumably it has this impact because deliberately killing another human being is is is, is a highly morally significant event um, for the for the person who's doing the killing. It's also obviously pretty significant for the person who just got killed, um, and this is the case. Even if, and this is a sort of important point, I think, in light of what we've been saying before, even if the action is believed to be morally justified, they can, it can still be, um, tra- uh, it can still be traumatic, and indeed uh, generate, cause moral injury, in, at least in 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 many people. Um, in addition um, to to this sort of trauma, which is as it were part and parcel of the role. Uh, the problem can be um, compounded by various sort of organisational stresses um, an unsupportive leadership excessively, excessively punitive discipline regimes and so on and so forth one of the other issues in the military culture um, which I mentioned before is this emphasis on physical and mental resilience which is very important in terms of being able to undertake the role so it's, it's critical to the role um, but It can um, end up compounding the problem of moral injury Um, if if moral injury is 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 kind of um, is just not accepted and is is regarded as a a, a stigmatized. um, It's regarded as just as simply weakness that can't be tolerated. Then um, that of course can rather than um, than taken to be what it is something that uh, is, is, is a consequence of traumatic events and can be resolved um, and probably is such that at certain points will be experienced by anyone I mean as it were everyone's got a breaking point um, and if that's the case then we've got a phenomenon that has to be kind of dealt with um, as an injury that can be uh, presumably can be repaired but not simply kind of stigmatized and rejected as as some kind of fundamental weakness of course it gets difficult then to to think about um which is which Uh, do you have someone who's who's uh criticizable um, for being weak as opposed to someone who's um in some genuine sense uh suffering injury that needs to be uh, needs to be repaired um and another factor of course for um Military people is um, which can compound their problem is an unsupportive uh, homeland community. This has been talked about a lot in relation to Vietnam veterans, for example. Okay, with turning now to the police, um, again, uh, police routinely confront critical incidents, including you know road deaths, um, scraping bodies off the highway, trauma other than death. Um, confronting victims of child sex abuse, et cetera, et cetera. These are morally significant events and moral injury may emerge after a long exposure to a series of traumatic events. Typically, when we looked at uh, what was happening in the New South Wales police, it was a case of, um, it it wasn't just sort of one or two or three traumatic events. It was kind of years indeed, decades of confronting these these sorts of traumatic events before the um, the, th- the sort of moral injury occurred. So I remember interviewing this guy that had a a, a very impressive uh, uh, police background. Particularly, um, he was the guy that the go-to guy for sieges. He obviously was was a very mentally and physically tough guy, uh, unquestionably. Um, but after 20 years of this, um, when I was talking to him, um, he had, PT- he was, had been um, diagnosed as PTSD. After 10 minutes talking about him, uh, talking about his, uh, you know, what he'd been up to in his career and so he, he, f- he fell apart in front of me, sort of uh, crying like a baby. So uh, he was clearly suffering moral injury. Um, but also, it would be completely false, I think, to say of this guy that he wasn't mentally and physically resilient. Um, it's just that it, at a certain point, the wear and tear took its toll. Um, and with people like that, it's obviously problematic to just move straight into moral stig- into stigmatising the guy's weak. I mean, what presumably should have happened in his case, he should have been um, relieved of some of those very demanding tasks and given a, 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 a lesser workload, and and been allowed to <clears throat> have have some sort of period of uh, of uh, to get himself together and his repair. And, and presumably, if that had been managed properly over many uh, over a very long period of time, he never would have got to that state, or at least that's the um, the suspicion, or at least that's the uh, it seems highly likely. Um, again with police if there's an adversary advers- if, if if you want the, if the military has to is fighting on behalf of the of the um, of the community and the community doesn't accept or thinks that what they're doing is is wrong as in the case of Vietnam perhaps that is not going to be helpful similarly with the police if they're in an adversarial relationship with the with the, the members of the public that they're supposed to be um, protecting and so on that's also going to be a problem um, and and not helpful in terms of uh, moral injury. Okay, so the. Let me, uh, How am I going for time here? Um, You're ten past six, so you've. You've. We well, need to be out by quarter to seven, so. Oh, we got fifteen minutes or so. Yeah. Before, yeah. Leave some time for questions. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so I'll try and speed things up a little bit. Um, although I'm about two thirds of the way through, so. Okay, so I want to talk um, now a little bit about this sort of dirty hands issue. Um, okay, so the role of this institutional role of combatants is to... Uh, a critical dimension to the role is, is, is to kill enemy combatants. So obviously life is at stake when it comes to, to um, uh, the life... The role of a soldier... The role of police is to enforce law, and they use harmful methods as well, deception, coercion, manipulation, uh, and so on. And again, something pretty important is at stake, namely freedom. So these two roles are actually uh, highly morally significant. There's a lot at stake. I mean, you're talking about life in the case of uh, the military, and you're talking about freedom in the case of the police, because ultimately... um, the end point of their activities is, is someone being imprisoned. <clears throat> um, but these roles, uh, obviously, as with all roles, typically internalised, the purpose and activity become elements, uh, as I'm arguing, um, of, one's, uh, of one's identity. And being morally significant roles, uh, as opposed to, say, the role of a sandwich hand or something, presumably, um, they're now caught up in your moral identity. Um, Unfortunately, however, um, in the case of the military and police, the the basic methods, or many of the the basic methods that that are used are are actually harmful methods, Um, and in fact methods such as, obviously, shooting people dead, but also, um, in the case of the police, the coercion, uh, use of intrusive surveillance... uh, uh, and so on. Hopefully they're in the service of good ends, um, that is genuinely in the service of national security or genuinely in the service of law enforcement. But nevertheless they are harmful methods which would normally be regarded as as morally problematic and that is that is part and parcel of the role. So, and they have to be, those harmful methods have to be internalised. Now it's not just a matter of running around in, sort of harming people. There's all sorts of moral constraints on them, um, in the case of the military, discrimination, necessity, and so on and so forth. So they are under moral constraints. But um, nevertheless, this, this is a potentially uh, dangerous dynamic in place here if, if these harmful methods are so central to the role um and it brings to mind uh the notion of dirty hands um and i'm not going to be suggesting that the use of harmful methods by police and military is necessarily dirty hands but 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 it but dirty hand scenarios are not as it were far off at least potentially so what are dirty hand scenarios well a dirty hand scenario, for those, uh, for those of you who um, haven't done any much political philosophy or whatever, are basically um, scenarios in which people, not necessarily police or military, but, but these are uh, favoured examples, basically scenarios in which people do harm or indeed wrong people, but for a good end. Um, and some of the kind of salient examples around us where you talk the, the notion of torturing a terrorist, for example, in order to save lives, the good end is saving lives. the dirty, the dirty uh, method is torture or uh, in the policing case um, you know this guy 's a drug dealer you don 't have enough evidence to, to nail him, so you fabricate the evidence or so you load, load up the evidence and you get your conviction. Um, of course, the dirty hands is kind of on a spectrum. Um, at one end of the dirty hand scenarios, it's relatively fabricating evidence, which is certainly um, a breach of the rules and, and, and unjust and so on. But it's not it's not quite the same thing, for example, as torturing an innocent person to get information to save a large number of lives. So, the, 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 as it were, the dirtiness of the dirty hand can be very dirtier or less dirty. Um, but I draw your attention to the fact that the the dirty hands is is not necessarily all that far away from from the harmful harmful methods that might be used by the police or the military. So if we start thinking about not sort of just routine arrest of of um, of people, but if you start thinking about some of the might be regarded as more morally dubious, um, but never, nevertheless, uh, in some jurisdictions, legal methods used by, say, police or military, say, enhanced interrogation. Enhanced interrogation that might be legal in some jurisdictions. Not torture, but... Um, or if you think about um, informants in, in, uh, in an organisation in which... Um, the informant is is a criminal engaging in serious crime but you're not actually going to going to arrest this person because they're giving you good information so you turn a blind eye to various cr- cr- criminal activity on the part of the informant and in the case of Northern Ireland some of the serious <coughs> crimes could include actually things like murder. Um, at any rate, the, the point I'm making here is that um, it's not necessarily such a long step from the use of lawful harmful methods by police and military to dirty hand scenarios, which where the methods are um, are unlawful, um, there's a there's a potential for a kind of uh, slippery slippery slope, slippery slippery slope, um, and the slope uh, could become quite slippery and go beyond um, even dirty hand scenarios because today's use of (coughs) some unlawful method uh, in the service of some good end might be tomorrow's um, in the case of the military uh, activity which probably isn't even in the service of a good end but but might be rationalised as such so um, on the one hand, there's controlled aggression in accordance with, um, uh, the moral, relevant moral principles. Um, but then you've got the phenomenon. This is, uh, out of Jonathan Shay's book of, of, uh, of berserk. Um, some guy going berserk, um, well, at first I mean when i just come there I couldn't believe Americans could do things like this is in Vietnam, another human being but then I became that. We went through villages and killed everything. I mean everything and that was alright with me. So the, the sort of slippery moral slope um, in the policing situation, this is one from um, John Blacker, a guy an uh, ex-police officer and this was from his own experience um, I'll let you read that, but basically, uh, he was the reserve constable, and he joined the police service. Um, bump, bump, bump. Uh, heavy set plain clothes officer descending the stairs, with one of the feet, tucked, of the prisoner's feet tucked under his arm, uh, his head bouncing from one um, step to the to the next. Um, The uh, the prisoner in question was a um, sex offender. Um, the treatment is to say the least um, excessive. The justification, well, I've got to get him to sign up. Um, no admission, no confession no conviction the reserve constable um, is kind of in a state of what the Uh, and then the last couple of lines the reserve constable says did you have to and the response is Dunno says the detective (coughs) I guess I just got into it Um, again, um, in the case of the berserk uh, combatant and and this, uh, and this detective, um, obviously their behavior is, is morally to say the least uh, problematic but you can kind of understand how it might come about in certain contexts and the problem is that not just what what they're doing to victims but in this context what they they end up doing to themselves because um, um, in both both cases they're prime candidates for for PTSD and, and serious moral injury. Okay, so one of the key things then is that uh, in relation to harmful methods is we've got to kind of hold the line um, on, har- on the use of harmful methods by the police and the military such that we don't get this slippery slope happening um, and therefore don't get or at least minimise the kind of moral injury, uh, the moral compromises, um, the loss of moral identity and so on that may come with it. Um, and putting matters in a kind of rather Simple light. What we need is that the harmful methods are justified by objective moral principles. Um, secondly, that 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 the action is lawful, um, and thirdly, that uh, there's community consent to that law, so that we're all on the same page um, with these with these harmful methods, um, and that that requirement that that threefold requirement is not necessarily all that easy to get I mean there is often the case that the law doesn't necessarily track morality uh, for whatever reason and sometimes the community doesn't isn't in line with um, with objective methods and so on and you get a lot of problems when those the those things don't line up okay but uh, clearly I'm suggesting the line should be you know to hold the line here and and that Threefold distinction allows you to maintain the distinction between the Dirty Harry, sometimes the police thing is called Dirty Harry, Dirty Hands scenarios, because typically Dirty Harry, Dirty Hands scenarios do not meet all of those three requirements. Um, the methods in question are not typically morally justified. They may be justified in the mind of the, the individual um, because of the good end that they see themselves as serving they're not they're typically not lawful and they're not um in accordance with the community's will um so there's a slippery slope from harmful methods to dirty hands to something even possibly worse i guess i just got into it and going berserk in a in a village but uh the line needs to be held against that as it were that slope okay so Coming to the final last couple of slides, um, reducing moral injury is a kind of wish list. So I've suggested, um, I've suggested to you that moral injury is that that far from moral injury being a kind of just a mere species of a of a larger PTSD serious psychological damage problem, it actually it's quite central to it. have secondly suggested that um, there's a kind of feature of policing and military let's call it the sort of dirty hand scenarios which um, sets up a dangerous moral dynamic um, in those occupations which is um, conducive if you like to moral injury um, because it can corrode um, moral character and therefore moral identity Um, given all that what uh, what's to be done? Um, well, you um, know, kind of, as I say, as a kind of wish list, but uh, I'll have a go at this now. So, well, what, the first thing that probably needs to be done is that you need to recruit resi- mentally and physically resilient people. I mean, there, there are probably many people, including possibly, um, or probably, um, soft academics like myself who simply don't have the the uh, the 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 underlying level of resilience to to take take on these occupations and there's various ways that people can be tested and so on but this is partly a normative question it seems to me that is what what levels of resilience are ones that um, ought to be in place uh, if you're going to be a police officer or or a combatant um, what are the normative standards, if you like, of physical and mental resilience? Um, then there's a need for ongoing training in moral injury and, and coping mechanisms, including for supervisors and those in command. Um, and there's a kind of pretty difficult issue here, I think, that calls for a certain degree of reflection on, those, on the part of those people um, between... Uh, identifying and, and working to prevent or relieving moral injury on the one hand as opposed to simply accommodating, indulging if you like um, a lack of mental resilience and, 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 a, a, and simply a weakness. Um, and that, has, that, that is a fairly difficult um, process to manage and, and calls for some degree of, uh, of reflection. Um, a kind of general point, I guess, it's not a good idea to commit the military to fight unjust or unwinnable wars because that is—it's not going to be very helpful in terms of um, the levels of moral injury. It's not, a, a likewise, not or an alleg- by analogy, it's not a good idea to get people, the police to enforce unjust laws, or, in, or more likely, to in, in liberal democracies, to, is to get them to sort of all by themselves solve. Um, Socioeconomic problems that they cannot actually solve all by themselves, such as, uh, for example, drug addiction, uh, because they're going to be on a hiding to nothing, and uh, this is not very helpful in terms of uh, preserving their um, moral identities and so on. Um, another kind of general point is that, and this is it, th- there are a lot of Entirely alterable stresses. There's the stresses that are part and parcel of the job, and that there's can't nothing can be done about them. That's the nature of the work. But then there are these stresses, uh, a lot of organisational stresses, for example, that are alterable, and they're compounding the problem. Um, but but it's not it's not necessary that they they obtain. So um, giving people poor equipment, inadequate uh, training. Um, uh, dysfunctional rotation processes, etc., uh, etc. Et so there are various organisational stresses that are alterable, um, which should be looked at. Um, then in terms of uh, supervision and so on, um, fair and reasonable workloads, one of the problems which is very unhelpful is, uh, for, for example, the military is, is uh, putting some people at much greater risk than others in, in an unfair uh, unfair way, um, that's not going to be helpful. Secondly, it's important and relatedly to have supportive leadership um, which means that people are it's the moral injury is understood and monitored and and, and that capacity for making the right kind of discretionary judgments um, in relation to moral injury versus um, sort of indulging um, weakness or whatever, uh, but that is quite a difficult exercise when you when, when it has to be undertaken in the context of the stigmatism um, issue. Um, in relation to the dirty hand scenarios and the slippery slopes, the issue there is partly it seems obviously clear guidelines and so on, um, but but also moral training and. A uh, degree of moral reflection. Obviously, when people are in the middle of arresting someone or engaged in a firefight, we can't sort of sit there having a process of moral deliberation. But nevertheless, there are plenty of there's plenty of downtime in, in which people can think about and reflect on this and try to think through what would be the right thing to do in this or that scenario, and uh, and that that would be helpful in terms of dealing with uh, potentially problematic, dirty hand scenarios. Uh, and then, of course, there's the issue of involving psychological injury, moral injury uh, professionals, uh, combat stress control units in, in actual theatres of war, uh, psychological counsellors at critical incidents. Um, one of the uh, regular counselling for particularly at risk groups such as undercover operatives. One of the one of the issues here is that a lot of the the counsellors have to, uh, and that is that becomes quite a difficult role in that. Um, they've got to understand the nature of the enterprise. I mean, what you don't want is um, uh, you know, sort of newly minted psych uh, graduate running along and doing a sort of overly caring and sharing thing with some hardened cop um, or military person um, at a at a critical incident. Um, that probably isn't going to work too well. In fact, um, conduct a lot of interviews with such people, and I can assure you, it didn't it didn't help. Um, and then finally, uh, what they refer to often as the communalisation of moral injury, um, since the military is uh, going to war on, uh, or ought only to be going to war on behalf of the community, and since the police um, are enforcing the community's laws and, and, and uh, working to ensure the safety of the members of the community, then... Um, there's presumably some sort of collective responsibility on the part of the community in relation to this issue of, of moral injury um, in its, uh, amongst its soldiers and, and police. Thanks.